Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, a writer for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Here's President Joe Biden about six months ago. And remember, the shortages in PPE during the pandemic, that meant we didn't have masks. We didn't have gowns or gloves to protect our frontline healthcare workers. This is an episode about resilience and industrial policy. It is an episode about personal protective equipment, or PPE. We shouldn't have to rely on a foreign country, especially one that doesn't share our interests or our values, in order to protect and provide our people during a national emergency. We're going to talk about the scramble for PPE, how parts of the American PPE industry are doing today, and how American policymakers might avoid a repeat of what we saw in 2020. We'll hear from two special guests. My name is Lloyd Armbrust, and I'm the founder of Armbrust American, and also the president of the American Mask Manufacturers Association. Lloyd is an entrepreneur who makes face masks. Hi, I'm uh, John Palufczyk. I'm a retired Navy two-star admiral, and I am now a managing director at Ernst & Young. John spent years running logistics for the American Navy, so moving aircraft carriers, supplies, and people in and out of war zones. And when the pandemic hit, he was pulled out of the Pentagon and taken over to the Department for Health and Human Services to help with PPE logistics. That turned into the vice president asking me to stand up a supply chain task force to uh, manage supplies for the national response. Let's start by talking about the problem back when the pandemic first hit. Basically, demand for PPE increased by a lot. A report from the UK government estimated that globally, demand for PPE in 2020 was between four and five times higher than it was in 2019. That is a really big increase. And unsurprisingly, at first, there just wasn't enough global supply to meet all of that demand. In the U.S., there was some planning for this sort of emergency. Uh, The Obama administration left behind this pandemic playbook uh, that set out what questions policymakers should be asking in a crisis like this. Like, for example, when the strategic national stockpile should release PPE to states. So an example of a question would be, is there sufficient personal protective equipment for healthcare workers who are providing medical care? If yes, what are the triggers to signal exhaustion of supplies? Are additional supplies available? And if no, should the strategic national stockpile release PPE to states? Now, knowing what questions to ask is is great, but it's not as great as having a detailed set of answers to those questions or knowing what to do if your stockpiles are way too small. We asked John how prepared the U.S. government was. Not very, to be all honest. You know, what uh, our national leadership had in place at that time, and it, and it stretches decades prior, right? So this is, this is like the collective we had not really thought through the scale and magnitude of an episode that's going to impact 50 states and six territories. 
Now, much ink has been spilled over the question of whether the Trump administration was uniquely unprepared for handling this crisis. And we are not going to dwell on that question in this episode. But eventually, the Trump administration is treating this like the massive emergency that it is um, and pulling people onto this COVID task force. They identified that demand for PPE was through the roof and supply just couldn't keep up. That was the first problem, this huge imbalance of demand and supply. The second problem was lack of information. They they were flying completely blind. Now, John wasn't a medical supply chains expert, but he had worked a lot on supply chains. He knew that to make it work, he was going to have to find out who was demanding PPE and who could supply it. That information just wasn't there. You know, the federal government, unless they have what I would call privity of contract with a vendor, really does not have a mechanism to see the commercial supply chain. You know, there's uh, commerce surveys, there's, uh, you know, trade information so you can see what's what, you know, overall flows are. But it's not like any of that is real-time information. And so, so the feds lacked a, uh, what I would call an end-to-end visibility solution uh, for, uh, in this case, we're talking about medical supplies. It is actually really unusual that America has so little information on domestic production. In the EU, for example, you do have trade getting recorded as it goes between the member states, so it's easier to identify quickly where production is actually taking place. Or in China, there's lots of state-owned enterprises who can share information with the government quickly. I guess I should interject here and point out that um, borders and state intervention, they do lead to great data, and that is lovely for economists, um, but they do have some negative effects. Just, just to just to point that out. Um, but going back to the US, so so one way the government could have had information on supply was if they had agreed with companies in advance that these companies should have spare capacity to make stuff in an emergency. So when when the DOD, when the Department of Defense agrees military contracts, it includes these things called surge contracts which say that a company must be able to supply extra stuff with super fast delivery times if there was a war or some kind of emergency. But those surge contracts weren't in place here. The federal government didn't really have supplies. They were distributed. They didn't have anything on order. Those supplies in the national stockpile were not backed up by surge contracts. They really were not backed up by surge contracts because we didn't make anything in America. That is a a bit of a generalization. There was some production of N95 masks in the United States, but imports were serving a lot of demand. A surgical mask, a nitro rubber glove, a isolation gown, those products, and I'll talk about N95s in a moment, but those types of products, we were essentially wholly reliant on Asia. So I stepped into a situation where we had very little supplies to start with. The industry itself was built on just in time. Hospitals didn't have inventory. States didn't have pandemic um, inventories 
so to speak. They had a little bit, but not much. Um, there weren't what I would call echelons of supply. And you certainly weren't backed up by a manufacturing capacity that you could surge. Um, I, one of my lessons learned is you can't surge zero. We, in most cases, we had zero. We made about 500 million nitro gloves in America pre-pandemic. We were using 1.8 billion a week. 500 million a year manufacturing is not like you're just going to put on another shift and make more gloves. That scale of magnitude didn't didn't work. And so really, there were a lot of we didn't have, we didn't have, we didn't have, there wasn't, there wasn't um, in in this process. So what about those, those N95 masks then? The only piece of goodness and um, I, I will say, which helped me bide some time, was that the Department of Defense had uh, approximately 50 million N95 masks in a program that they call the War Stopper Program, where they're, they're both in federal and commercial warehouses. It's a shelf life management tool that allows the commercial industry to rotate stock and keep everything fresh. They had 50 million N95s. The only other saving grace was that 3M, Honeywell, Owens and Miner, et cetera. We did produce some N95 masks in America. And so one of the first things that the DPA was used was to surge and build more of what we were already making in America, which was N95 masks. According to a USITC report published in December of last year, in 2017, about $3.5 billion a year of PPE was being made in America. In 2020, they estimated that around 15,000 people in the whole country were employed in PPE production. That is not very many people. The US population is well over 300 million. Uh, it's, It's very, very few people. But America did make a lot of its own N95 masks. That same report from the USITC found that US production accounted for around 80% of the US market demand before the pandemic. And by the end of 2020, remember this was published at the end of 2020, they expected the number of N95 respirators made each month to increase from around 30 million to 180 million, six-fold increase. But apart from N95 masks, there just wasn't much production taking place in America. In back of March of 2020, the inventory from the strategic national stockpile was going quickly. Ramping up production and installing new capacity was going to take time, time people just didn't have. Something else was going to have to make up the gap between that skyrocketing demand and the temporary limits to domestic production, and that was trade. So there's this global scramble for PPE going on, and the Trump administration started something called Project Airbridge, where it tried to grease the wheels of trade. It paid for the flights of private sector providers of PPE on the condition that they would sell half of their supplies to COVID hotspots. John was part of that effort, which mostly delivered gloves, around 937 million of them. That's about half a week's supply of gloves, if you accept John's figure of 1.8 billion gloves being used a week. 
Now, this this program, Project Airbridge, was pretty flashy. It did attract some criticism. Uh, it cost $91 million and, and wasn't the most transparent of government projects. There wasn't much information on what was being delivered where. But, you know, every little bit of extra supply helps. More generally, everyone was trying to fly stuff in. Normally, this PPE is just too low of value to bother to ship by plane. But in the pandemic, no one could wait the the 30 days or so for, for the masks or gloves to get there by a container ship. Now, eventually, there turned out to be a massive surge in imports of PPE, and most of that came from China. It's just that that massive surge didn't come in right away. Before the pandemic, China had accounted for over half of the world's exports of PPE, and the U.S. was its biggest customer. I went back and looked at the data, and from January through March of 2020, this is the the beginning stages of the pandemic, China just didn't export much PPE to anyone as it dealt with the the COVID-19 outbreak at home. But starting in April, China's exports of PPE, especially to the U.S., just exploded. And over the rest of 2020, China sent the United States 75% more masks and respirators than it did in 2019, and it exported nearly three times the amount of protective garments. Now, remember I said, before the pandemic, domestic production in the U.S. was around 30 million N95 masks, and that rose to around 180 million through the pandemic. Well, between July and September of 2020, the U.S. was importing over 500 million respirators a month. Most of those came from China. And, and, you know, it's not like all of this went smoothly. Uh, people were trying to outbid each other. There was one crazy story where a shipment of 400,000 masks at a, at a Thai airport that had been bound for Germany suddenly disappeared and got diverted to the U.S. The German government uh, accused the Trump administration of modern piracy, saying that the global market for PPE was like the Wild West. And, you know, even for the people who got their hands on PPE, prices rose a lot. Uh, At their peak, Chinese masks and respirators coming into the U.S. were were nearly 800% more expensive um, than they had been before the pandemic. Protective garments were around 400% more expensive than than usual. And, you know, another unintended consequence is that um, a bunch of people obviously saw these price increases and thought, hey, what a great time to start my fake mask business. So imports rose a lot starting in in April of 2020, especially from China. And for for most products, the U.S. just wasn't able to increase imports from any other source. Stepping back, it's clear that eventually the, the imports of PPE the U.S. received from China during the pandemic saved thousands and thousands of American lives. So this is an emergency. The U.S. is desperately trying to get its hands on whatever PPE it can from overseas and also domestically. And in April, it invokes the Defense Production Act, or the DPA. Now, people may have heard of this because it's the law that they use to restrict exports. We'll get get to that in a minute. But it was also used to get more imports. So what happens here is... The U.S. government used export restrictions, or or the threat of them at least, as a source of leverage. The government couldn't get the stuff it wanted, and it decided not to play nice. It tries to force 3M, a U.S.-headquartered multinational company, to send N95 respirators that it's making in its plants in other countries around the world to sell more of those into the U.S., 
Here's John. Hey, look, 3M's a global company. You can imagine they had lots of, uh, lots of pressures coming from global partners, let alone pressures from inside China to keep, their, keep that production in for the Chinese. But in the end, we were able to use the Defense Production Act and get an allocation out of all of their production across the globe into the United States. But it was, uh, it was not a simple process. Just to give it a sort of definition here, the DPA is this law that says, yeah, th- those contracts you have are nice. They're nice. We don't care. The government gets priority. Go. And on Friday, April the 3rd, 3M issued a pretty unusual press release. Here's the first part. In the course of our collaboration with the administration this past weekend, the administration requested that 3M increase the amount of respirators we currently import from our overseas operations into the U.S. We appreciate the assistance of the administration to do exactly that. For example, earlier this week, we secured approval from China to export to the U.S. 10 million N95 respirators manufactured by 3M in China. What's so extraordinary here is that the U.S. government is trying to yank production from other countries into the United States. I don't even know if that's legally covered under the DPA. But whether the law gave that authority might not have mattered so much in the moment because the administration had leverage. Here's the second part of that 3M press release. The administration also requested that 3M cease exporting respirators that we currently manufacture in the United States to the Canadian and Latin American markets. There are, however, significant humanitarian implications of ceasing respirator supplies to healthcare workers in Canada and Latin America, where we are a critical supplier of respirators. In addition, ceasing all export of respirators produced in the United States would likely cause other countries to retaliate and do the same, as some have already done. If that were to occur, the net number of respirators being made available to the United States would actually decrease. That is the opposite of what we in the administration, on behalf of the American people, both seek. Now, I have a clear memory of of being contacted by the Canadians at this point who saw this and who became really worried that suddenly they were going to get shut off from American-produced supplies of PPE. John helped draft the export restrictions that the U.S. government ultimately imposed. Eventually, Canada and Mexico did get carved out, but not in the first version of the regulation. I asked John if he remembered that part about Canada and Mexico. The first version may not had Canada and Mexico, and um, that issue did come down. And we had a, we had another discussion and approval to modify it for Canada and Mexico. Now that you now that you say that, you made me made me think through it. I uh, I seem to remember that there was an issue that we had to go re, uh, reframe. I mean, I took away from John's response that it wasn't the most kind of important thing that he remembers about that particular episode. Um, and, I, I, you know, I think the message here is, sorry, trade nerds, domestic policymakers in a crisis do not care that much about you. I think that's right. In my experience, at least, this is pretty standard fare in policymaking. Us trade nerds think that the trade people within governments are running the show. 
but but really they're just not. It's really regulators, in this case, like John, who are the ones that, that make the decisions. If the trade people in government are tracking things closely, then they might be able to, to get themselves invited to the meeting, make their case, and have the, the ultimate policy reflect trade rules. But in an emergency like this, no way. Just finishing this little episode with, with the DPA, essentially the U.S. government was saying, look, give us more masks or we're really going to mess up your ability to meet your contracts, you being, you know, 3M in this case. And so so 3M ultimately agreed to send 167 million masks to the U.S. from its plants in China over April, May and June. And on that export controls part of the DPA, despite those export restrictions, the U.S. actually increased its exports to Canada as well as to the rest of the world of this PPE over the rest of 2020. Now, the fact that U.S. PPE exports went up doesn't actually tell us all that much. And that's just because we don't have a really good estimate of how big demand was in the U.S., Canada, or the rest of the world during this period. And you need those things to figure out how big exports would have been without those export restrictions actually being in place. On those export controls announced in April, the initial U.S. government announcement said that the limits on respirators and gloves would only be in place for 120 days or or until August. We asked John how often those restrictions were reviewed. It was a frequency of weeks, which may be a little bit more than a month. Um, And it was about where are we for U.S. production? What did we, what did we grow um, our production to meet uh, what we thought was national demand? Where were we also to recreating a national stockpile? Uh, where were the hospitals, nursing homes, states on building their supplies, going from you know living hand to mouth, day to day to weeks to months? Uh, And so um, that process took took time. And so I I do not think we loosened any of those restrictions until, like, the fall going into the winter. It took a long time for those export restrictions to ultimately be lifted. In April 2020, when when things first started, the only products on the export restriction list were respirators, masks, and hospital gloves. Beginning in August, they also started restricting hospital gowns. For some PPE, those export controls would remain in place well into 2021. Restrictions on N95 masks were only lifted on June 11th of this year. In this emergency, everyone scrambled. And that scrambled really was not fun. And attention to domestic supply increased. In August of 2020, the Canadian government, for example, announced subsidies for its own 3M plot in Ontario to make N95 respirators. They had identified that they were vulnerable to the U.S. threatening to to cut off exports, and so they wanted to cultivate their own domestic supply. In the U.S., the government was also very interested in cultivating domestic production. They used the DPA to build capacity. Here's John. We used the DPA to go create 
what I would call national demand. So out of the supply chain and other other sources, we felt that we need we needed 280 million N95 masks a month, which all add up to something under just under three billion. So you just say three billion a year. The DoD contracted for that capacity. We needed 400 million isolation gowns a month. And so we went off and um, used the DPA for that. It was a systematic, like, work at it. To the point, the task force is kind of still there. The processes and the policies and who's doing the work, they are now still making awards using the Defense Production Act for nitro glove manufacturing. Really the hardest nut to crack because... There was zero uh, manufacturing. We, we didn't make any nitrile rubber to go in for the nitrile gloves. So there was a whole industry that had to be created, um, sized, et cetera, a, a systematic process. I think by the time we got into the fall, we were making mostly national demand in a lot of line items for our medical providers. This is industrial policy. The federal government paid companies to add capacity to make PPE, and not just the, the final N95 respirators, but also the inputs like melt bone fiber and, and the filters that companies like 3M and Honeywell that they need to make those respirators in the first place. Between April and December of 2020, I found that the, the federal government granted over $800 million of contracts and subsidies to build out the, the full U.S. PPE supply chain. And it wasn't just the Trump administration. The Biden administration continued it too. In May and June of, of 2021, the Department of Defense spent another $400 million to subsidize expanded production of those nitrile gloves that John was talking about, the, the, the rubber hospital gloves, as well as the specialized rubber you need to make them. The government intervened But it wasn't just government action that built up the U.S. industry. A bunch of companies entered the market. The USITC found that pre-pandemic, there were essentially two American companies producing gloves, neither of which had much market share. At the end of last year, both were expanding capacity, while a third company announced that it was expanding into production of nitrile gloves. Now we are going to hear from Lloyd Armbrust, an American entrepreneur who tried to solve the problem of the shortage of masks by entering the PPE market and expanding domestic supply. Here's Lloyd. So like about 28 other companies uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, we solved this problem of uh, our country not being able to get masks. And the problem just seemed like a really dumb problem to have for one of the greatest countries in the world. And so we started, I think, in April of last year, putting our mask machines together. And uh, the first mask came off the line on May 5th. And I remember that date because it was two days after my son was born. So he beat the masks by just a couple of days. Becoming a mask maker overnight is not easy. We built the capability of making about a million masks per day, and that's both surgical and N95 masks. It took us about six months to put that together. And I've started many companies in the past, uh, software companies, computer, like physical hardware companies. 
This is the hardest thing I've done by far. You're talking about regulatory issues. You're talking about um, working with the FDA. You're talking about getting third-party labs. And then dealing with equipment from another country during a global pandemic when you just don't have access to things. Still, Lloyd thought he had a business model that would work. I built the business model and figured out that I could create these things in the United States for about two and three cents a piece, uh, which is a great price because before the pandemic, a top, top level surgical mask in China was going, you know, for anywhere from six cents to 15 cents. And there are different grades of surgical masks, but we're only, I figured if we're going to make it in the U.S., let's just make the best ones. And so I said, hey, that's a great business right there. And I can, I put in all my overhead, I put in my rent, I put in like, you know, HR and all that stuff. And I said, we can make this business work because what I wanted to do was make something that was sustainable, right? I wanted to make something that we could, you know, from pellets to pallets, we can make everything here in the United States. And I think what was unique about what we built is we built the ability to make the fabric. We built the ability to take raw polypropylene and turn that into actual masks, aside from the metal. And it was because of that that we were able to save a lot of costs. But what has been surprising to me, and now that I, I'm saying it out loud, I'm like, well, I should have seen that coming, uh, is that China is actually, they don't want to lose this fight, right? They've seen all of the supply that's been stood up, which is about, you know, four or five billion masks a year we can make now in the United States we couldn't make before. And they don't want that business to go away. Lloyd invested so that he would be able to make the mask components, not just assemble things. He invested in automation, and all of this was a way to cut costs. But so did China. Whereas before mask making was relatively labor intensive, companies in China, in response to the pandemic, changed their methods of production. They also built massive factories that were much more heavily automated with lots of vertical integration. And Lloyd found that his Chinese competitors were selling masks for really, really low prices. If I want to ship my masks to South Carolina via a truck it's gonna cost me probably about a half a penny a mask if I amortize it that way. We're losing masks delivered from China for under that price to South Carolina. So it's like, okay, well, how does that math work exactly? One of the striking things about Lloyd's situation is that he really didn't know what exactly the problem was. Knowing what dumping is uh, from the trade department's definition, um, I would guess that they are dumping. However, you know that it can be hard to get proof of that. Um, this, this, is what I, this is what I do know, okay? I know, because they've told me, that most of these new mask companies in China have received government funds from China, from the Chinese government. Um, to set up new factories, to get, you know, free financing. Um, And there also appears to be subsidized shipping as well. I don't have proof of that personally, but in just talking to a lot of the folks in China who are selling masks and seeing what price they're able to get them over, 
and having shipped a lot of stuff from China, I can tell you that they're getting, I, I want to work with their freight forwarder. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> like they're getting a really good deal. Um, so they're very careful about how they're doing this. And I don't think that all of it's nefarious. I don't think that, call it 50% of the pressure that American mask manufacturers are getting is like somebody in the Chinese government saying, we're gonna destroy these guys. I think a lot of it is just normal market pressure. I think that China overproduced. I think that China overproduced and proactively sent a lot of masks over here that are sitting in American warehouses. I know American companies that brought billions of masks over and sold them. I know that they have hundreds of millions sitting in warehouses right now. Now, trade lawyers might be listening to this and thinking, hello, we can help. Do you want anti-dumping duties? Do you want countervailing duties to protect against subsidized imports? Pay me a nice fee and I will make your dreams come true. So we were told that it's going to take 11 months, but then the entire process take about 18 months. And, you know, when we, we talked to a couple different law firms, um, you know, it would be probably about 700000 to to a million dollars uh, to pursue this. There'd probably be like a 50-50 chance giving our situation. We had some folks look into it and they said, you know, you have a better than average chance of making this happen. But the thing is, is like, it's, you really have to want this to work. We asked Lloyd whether he thought anti-dumping duties were a serious option for either him or the American Mask Manufacturers Association, the AMMA. If we really wanted the anti-dumping duties to, to happen, it would have to be something that would be the focus of probably me personally and, and several other members of the AMMA for the next year. And it's really hard as an entrepreneur to like want to focus on basically something that's admitting failure for that long period of time. Because what you're saying, saying is like, there is a, an entire government that is working against my business and I need my government to come in and do something about it. Well, I'm an entrepreneur. I want to build stuff that people want. I don't want to be in a business that is two governments fighting over each other. That's not interesting to me. I, I understand there are plenty of business people that they want to do that and, that, and that's not me. And so when we looked at the options, it was like, look, you got to spend all this money, which is fine. And then you have a 50-50 chance of like basically getting a prize, which is really just like everyone also being mad at you too. Because keep in mind, like if you have a tariff on all of these different businesses, then all of these importers, like the people that are our customers who are buying from these companies are now going to be mad at us for doing this thing, right? And so it's like, you just, we really can't win. Now, John is no longer working for the U.S. government. But he also sees that all the domestic mask-making capacity built up through the pandemic might not be sustainable. Here's where we are. China has um, brought in a, a bunch of masks. Let's just take surgical masks. Uh, we had, at one point, 60-some-odd, 78 mask manufacturers during the pandemic. Folks that found capital, used capital, used their own, figured out a way to 
glom onto machines and make masks. It's about a couple of cents a mask. China's selling surgical masks for three for a penny, right? And so not competing with that. And so a lot of these mask manufacturers have collectively, I think they have two to 300 million masks on the shelf with no buyers. And so that's not a, that's not a business that's going to sit around for a while. There is an important question here. Economically, if you're thinking only about the short term, it may not make sense for these American PPE producers to be in business outside of a pandemic. But what if a crisis like this hits again? I think that there's lots to do to figure out from the federal standpoint, what capacity do we want to keep? How to make it competitive across the globe. And if it can't be made competitive across the globe, find ways to keep it at least viable for the U.S., whether it's federal contracts, whether it's stipends, whether it's, I don't, I don't have all the answers, but I can see a point in time in the future, we're going to have to come in terms with that. The alternative to having spare capacity or production capacity that can be shifted really quickly into PPE manufacturing is having massive stockpiles. Or maybe that capacity in the stockpiles are complements. We have to have a bigger viable national stockpile. We have to have states with some things. We have to have the hospitals that have responsibilities to have supplies on hand. That whole ecosystem needs to be backed up by an amount of U.S. production that can be surged and contracts in place to surge it. And so we were working towards having a 90-day ecosystem, state stockpiles, hospital stockpiles, national stockpile, about 90 to 120 days to allow us to start even if plants were sitting idle and you were paying, the federal government was paying to keep that production capacity, you'd have 120 days to figure out how to turn it on and make items, right? That's, that's at a bare minimum, right? There's the in-between as well of a, a viable U.S. industrial base that's producing medical supplies that uh, the national stockpile is... Um, being rotated through a demand pattern within hospitals and nursing homes so it stays fresh. I mean, look, you got 480 million N95 masks now in the national stockpile, all bought about the same time within the last year, all going to expire ah, five years from now. How do, you, what, how do you keep that volume of manufacturing available to redo 480 million masks every five years, where pre-COVID medical demand for N95 masks was about six to eight million masks a month. Not, not, not pre-COVID demand is not going to allow you to use and re-shelf life, those things. So there are some significant challenges in front of us. The USITC report outlined some other factors affecting U.S. production of PPE, including making it easier for companies to enter the market if another crisis hits. For N95 masks, there were issues about the time and cost it took for new companies to start producing. 
As Lloyd mentioned, getting all the right equipment is really, really expensive. For surgical masks, an issue was the time and cost to then also getting regulatory approval. And during the pandemic, some companies trying to enter the market for hospital gowns really struggled to understand the FDA standards. The other worry, though, for for these companies involves the size of long-term demand. As a government, you could do things today to, to keep that domestic capacity going, like giving special preferences to domestic manufacturers through government procurement. So buy America type stuff. The downside of all that is cost. American healthcare already isn't known for being particularly cheap and maintaining idle capacity can be really expensive. It also may not be as reliable as capacity that's in continual use. There was this one recent example related to vaccines. The U.S. government had kept a plant on standby prior to the pandemic and under federal contract for hundreds of millions of dollars, it was supposed to be triggered and and used if a pandemic ever struck. But when COVID-19 came along, that plant botched the manufacturing of the actual vaccines it, it was told to make. Now, PPE is certainly easier to manufacture than vaccines, but there is still this risk. So maybe you just need to make sure that companies could swap production in a pinch. So you make them plan for it. One of the ideas I've heard about is this this idea of doing stress tests. You might want to do stress tests on PPE supply chains. Um, So you do an exercise like there is for the banking system where you say, this is the situation, we need this. How quickly can, can you deliver it? Now, it, it does seem like it, it would be a good idea, it would be nice to have more information on supply capacity, but obviously that does take time, resources, companies might not be thrilled about sharing commercially sensitive information, um, it might be hard to coordinate across you know, global supply chains, uh, so it's not, not completely straightforward. You could also think of, of some kind of trade deal where countries perhaps would agree that they would pool their production capacity. So this country would have most all the glove producers, and that one would make the masks, and then they'd agree to share if another crisis hit. The problem with with trying to do some sort of international agreement, though, is that when the crunch point actually hits and everybody all needs this stuff at the same time, it's almost impossible to stop people from sitting on what they have. And that's a lot of what we saw in COVID-19. If you're trying to coordinate across countries, then one solution could be to make sure that all of your surge capacity is somewhere with a, with a tiny population where that tiny population, they, they wouldn't need to keep everything for themselves. So, you know, maybe Singapore or, or New Zealand should go big on, on production of gowns or something. I suppose the issue is that to get any kind of international agreement, um, which I think is quite unlikely, uh, that relies on trust and that is just very thin on the ground right now. I do think that it's probably not a good idea to have so much of the world's capacity to manufacture PPE concentrated in just one country, whatever that country is. And stepping quite far back, if you're going to start making sure that there's available capacity of certain critical goods, you you do have to worry about this slippery slope. You know, which are the critical products where you are going to intervene like this? PPE was important in this situation, but what about other kinds of crises? 
Uh, you need to be careful so that everyone doesn't start trying to declare that their products are essential and so that they need this this kind of support or protection. Um, and, and also one needs to be realistic about government capacity to, to manage everything. So yeah, for some critical items, clearly you want to have national stockpiles, that kind of thing. But also we need to be pragmatic, realistic, so that we don't sort of end up somewhere at the conclusion that, you know, autarky is great, um, because that's that's just not very realistic. And on that note, I think that is all for this week's episode of Trade Talks. A huge, huge thanks to John Palauchik, now at Ernst & Young, who is the White House Supply Chain Lead for the Supply Chain Stabilization Task Force between March and November 2020. Thanks also to Lloyd Armbrist of Armbrist American and the president of the American Mask Manufacturers Association. Thanks to my wife, Rebecca, for playing the role of a lifetime, that of the April 2023M press release. Do also check out my paper on the topic of PPE trade titled, How COVID-19 Medical Supply Shortages Led to Extraordinary Trade and Industrial Policy. Thanks to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores at trade underscore Chad, underscore Chad, talks. Chad, we're not doing this. We're not doing this. I deleted the two underscores thing. Oh, no, wait. You were just explaining that it was two underscores. You weren't trying to do a joke. Oh, God, I'm a terrible human. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, okay. it's at trade underscore underscore talks, listeners. Ah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>